say hi to everybody. Hi. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Seven made a little guest appearance there. That is Seven the Wondercat. So, um, just wanted to say a couple things before we get into the question answering phase here. Um, been having a lot of thoughts and things flying around in the last week since I got back from the International Cultic Studies Association conference last weekend. There are so many people to follow up with and so much content that I want to put up on this channel from people that I met and interacted with at that conference. And um, it's just been a little bit of a whirlwind getting all my stuff done. And also, um, this week I'll have another big segment with uh, Jeff Levin uh, for you on Thursday. I got to edit that. We did that yesterday. And um, anyway, I did a podcast uh, which I posted yesterday about psychiatry versus Scientology. Uh, that was sparked by an academic paper that I read by Dr. Stephen Kent and his assistant, uh, his graduate student assistant at the time in 2012. Her name was Tara Monka. And um, I met Stephen Kent at the uh, conference, which sort of um, made me think of that paper, which made me do that podcast. So I hope you guys will check that out. Um, I put some, uh, I think there's some pretty new and interesting content in there to take a look at and a fairly nuanced look at the subject of psychiatry as well as uh, Scientology. So uh, that's there for you. And anyway, just wanted to kind of throw those things out there. And also, I wanted to validate some new Patreon subscribers or uh, supporters. I'd like to personally thank Michelle Wilcox, Sherry Sporn, Zolt Horvath, um, MDR Slacker 01, <laughs> uh, Emily Jernan upped her pledge every month. Thank you very much. Tara Hall. Cynthia Pinsote also upped her pledge a little bit. Thank you very much. And Chi Chalker back on board. So thank you very much. Um, I haven't been thanking everybody, so I'm sure I've missed some people, but I just wanted to throw out a few names there of people who have been supporting this channel and are definite friends of what I'm trying to do here. And if you feel that what I'm doing on this channel is informative, educational, and entertaining, then consider joining me on Patreon as well, because that is how this channel is funded so that I can keep doing what I'm doing. Now, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Nick C. Some time ago, you posted a video of your conversation with Nora Crest. One story Nora told was about having a conversation with a friend from before Scientology who was on active duty in the U.S. Navy at the time of the conversation. She recalls him being offended by her Sea Org uniform. Have you heard similar stories from other Sea Org members? A lot, a few, none other than Nora's. Any personal experience or comments? Oh yeah, the good old Sea Org Class A uniform. I'll uh, throw a screenshot up here of what that uniform looks like, and you can see it's sort of faux navy in appearance. And we had lanyards, which were little chains or little um, gold stripes or green stripes, and those would indicate officer ranks or the fact that we were on a mission or a project. And you know, we had little chevrons for our ranking as petty officers. And if you moved up to uh, officer status, you got gold, you know, bars on your on your sleeves and and a whole new jacket and cap with with gold lining versus silver and all this nonsense. And uh, when we were out in public, and okay, first off, when I first got in the Sea Org in 1995, the Class A uniform was our regular uniform at management. 
the um, service organizations had just gotten new different uniforms and um, they were blue and uh, polyester and they'd been going through different phases of uniforms over the years but they were not having to wear the class A uniform which looks like this formal navy kind of uh, attire. So it was really just us management people in Los Angeles who were stuck wearing these class A uniforms all the time. And, um, and then as the years rolled forward, the service orgs got um, the, the ones that faced the public and actually dealt with them and delivered the classes and the auditing, that sort of thing. They got more normal looking outfits and we, you know, were stuck with class A. So when I would go out on projects or missions around the West U.S., that was my uniform. And, um, and sometimes it was, you know, when I would travel and stuff, sometimes I'd wear that, other times I would change into civvies. And then when you get to where you're going to, you put on your class A uniform and you march into the org and you know, you're Mr. Sea Org guy and now you're gonna, you know, have your uniform and of course all the little bars and campaign ribbons and things so you can make it look like you're, you know, a very important person. And, um, and of course I was very aware of that. This was part of, you know, what Hubbard called ethics presence. This was part of, you know, the symbology of the uniform and the ranks and all that kind of thing were part of what Hubbard said lent us authority and therefore made people listen to us. So that was part of, you know, the whole um, character of the sea organization. And so, uh, so I wore the uniform with some degree of pride when it came to Scientology. But there were plenty of times where I was confronted by people on a bus or on a plane or traveling asking, what kind of uniform is that? I don't recognize that. Sometimes service people you know, veterans or people who were active duty uh, military or people who just wondered what that was all about. You know, maybe they'd been, you know, way back or their parents had been in the military or something. So I sort of would just say honestly, well, I'm in the C organization, which is a, a division of the Church of Scientology. And they'd go, oh, okay. And I wouldn't get too much crap about it because people, you know, I might get some funny looks, but generally speaking, people are nice you know, when they confront you in person uh, and they don't have any cause to really be upset with you or something. And I didn't get a lot of upset reactions over the years when I mentioned that I worked for the Church of Scientology, but it was always a little, I always had a little bit of attention on it, you know, maybe somebody's gonna, you know, say something. Um, and sometimes people would really want to have these like, you know, conversations about it. What are the ribbons and why do you wear that uniform and this, you know, that kind of thing. And I might compare it to, um, I had enough awareness to, you know, not come across as a total imbecile. So I'd say, you know, well, we're in the C organization. Maybe it's akin to the Salvation Army. They wear uniforms sometimes, you know, stuff like that. Just try to draw some kind of normal comparison to what I was doing. Um, but in the later years, um, a recruiter, actually, um, who's out of the Sea Org now, ironically, um, but I heard him say one time, um, somebody asked him, well, what's that uniform? And he said, he said, special forces, special peacekeeping forces, right? And I just laughed. I thought that was funny. And, I, and then I used it a couple times. And again, you know, people just wanted an answer to the question. They really didn't care what the answer was. So I didn't get you know, grilled about my special forces training or something like that. Um, you know, and, and I never really, after I got past the special peacekeeping forces line, people didn't really have a lot else to say to me. So 
I never tried to get military discounts with my uniform or anything like that. I know some people did who were Sea Org members, uh, like at restaurants or something, but um, otherwise the uniform wasn't, it was awkward sometimes, a little embarrassing other times, but generally speaking it was kind of a, not, you know, not much of an issue um, in the big wide world, so that's my, my, my response to that. Stephen Willis. I have a background of being a fundamentalist, Bible-believing Christian. It's awkward to admit, but I bought it hook, line, and sinker to the point that I thought that there were even Satanist Illuminati conspiracies. In fact, there were certain brands, music, and other things I'd avoid as if I could catch Satanism from them or something. You can imagine how funny it was to me when I found out the Church of Satan is actually an atheist activist group. With the conspiracy mindset of the Church of Scientology, did you have similar experiences in avoiding certain things? I heard one former Scientologist saying that their mother would always buy those cheap, off-brand generic plasters instead of Band-Aids, because apparently Johnson & Johnson has a large psychiatric drug business and she didn't want to give them money. Did you ever experience or see anything like that, or is that example more of an outlier? Well, in terms of boycotting products or movies or, or merchandise or something like that, there's not really a lot of that that comes to mind that I recall particularly. We had rules in the Sea Org about avoiding any scented products, and that was a direct rule of L. Ron Hubbard's. So that wasn't so much a boycott as it was just following the rules. We had to get unscented soap, unscented shampoo, unscented everything. And some people in the Sea Org were really sticklers about that. Most people didn't really care too much, but it was, it was kind of a thing because Hubbard said it was a thing. We would avoid movies or any form of entertainment that had um, anything having to do with anti-Scientology stuff in it or pro-psych stuff. And that was, that was pretty much the sort of thing we would be on the lookout for, was anything that pushed a pro-psychiatric message or had movie stars acting as psychiatrists or psychologists or something. They were always objects of ridicule and scorn for Scientologists, so we would avoid anything like that. Um, not necessarily like, okay, I can't see that movie, but it was more like, well, okay, well, maybe it's a good movie, but that actor really, you know, I, I didn't like him because he was a psych or something, you know. We had to, uh, I was told, for example, to avoid uh, Bowfinger uh, that had uh, Eddie Murphy in it because uh, Terrence Stamp, I think, or, or uh, uh, yeah, plays a guy who's clearly um, a parody of L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology. I think they call it Mindhead. I never actually did end up seeing the whole movie, but, um, but we'd hear about things like that and learn to avoid that sort of thing. And also, of course, we had to avoid any kind of anti-Scientology materials in the bookstores. I was in the bookstores all the time, and I remember reading um, about, you know, A Piece of Blue Sky. You got to avoid that, you know, this John Atack book. There were certain books that were, that I, I think I remember seeing a list one time of suppressive books or books put out by suppressive people, and that was one of them. But as far as avoiding places to eat or places to shop or something, I don't really recall anything like that. I've seen more of that out in the big wide world since I left Scientology with people boycotting Hobby Lobby or uh, Papa John's Pizza or uh, Walmart or something, you know, because they're protesting unfair trade practices or the religious component of the ownership of these companies and they, you know, kind of get down like Chick-fil-A, you know, I'm not going to eat at Chick-fil-A, screw those guys. You know, I don't eat at Chick-fil-A because I don't like their food. I don't think it's very good fast food. Uh, not because I don't, uh, you know, because I want to stick it to them because they have Christian beliefs. I, I don't really care too much about that. Um, 
you know, but I do get the point. I mean, I understand when people have a, a moral objection to something. I don't, I don't make fun of them or say that that's, you know, stupid. I just don't particularly agree with it. So uh, I boycotted Walmart for a while because I was really angry at the uh, unfair practices. And then I realized I wasn't exactly bringing Walmart to their knees. And they do have some really good deals, and sometimes I don't have a lot of money, so it's a, it makes sense to go shop there for certain things. So anyway, you know, I think you get my point. Um, in, the, in the Church of Scientology, unless we were specifically ordered to avoid some place, and again, I, I, I can't even recall a time where that ever really happened. Um, there was a hair cutter who was around the corner from the pack base, the big blue buildings, uh, who um, I'm now Facebook friends with, who was anti-Scientology, and she had anti-Scientology stuff in her window, and she was always trying to appeal to the Sea Org members around the area, and we were told to avoid her. Um, but that was a very, very specific case. So that's, that's, my, that's my best answer for you. Gern Blonston. I know it will never happen, but if disconnection was outlawed, would Scientologists be okay with it? Yeah, they would, and I'll tell you why. Because they're pretty much okay with anything David Miscavige orders or says. They're, you know, in a destructive cult activity, you have the, the leadership and, and the authority figures, and then you have the followers. Well, they're called followers because they follow orders and direction. And I don't mean to be, uh, you know, sarcastic here. I'm just, you know, saying that that's the relationship. And with Scientologists, you might think that some of them would go, oh, no, Hubbard, you know, that's not okay. But if Miscavige wanted to cancel Disconnection, he could do it tomorrow. Easily. They, they, they nominally canceled Disconnection in 1968. Hubbard literally wrote it. And then they just didn't pay any attention to it. That was strictly written for PR purposes. And maybe there was a year or two where they stopped telling people that that was the first thing you should do. But they absolutely still cut off family members and friends who were hostile or antagonistic to Scientology. If, if the person doesn't chill out or calm down, then the Scientologist feels he has no choice. This is common in all destructive cults. That's the part of the us versus them thinking that these groups have to create in order to get the degree of loyalty that they feel they need, the fanatical degree of loyalty, uh, from the membership. That's one of the reasons why it's destructive. So it literally destroys relationships. So if Miscavige wanted to cancel that, he could easily do so. He could fall back to the 1968 reference and say, we just found this reference that some SP had uh, hidden away or said, you know, was canceled when in fact it wasn't canceled and we're pulling it back out and we're canceling disconnection and we're allowing people to be in touch with their family and friends even if they don't feel that Scientology is really all that. But... I'm sure from what I've already said in this answer, you can see why they would never do it. And like you mentioned in your question, uh, it's not going to happen because it's all about power and control. And that is, the, that is one of the main tools that David Miscavige uses to exert power and control over his base. And, uh, and they're not going to give that up. If people started being able to, I, I said early on after I got out of Scientology, I realized just how big of a deal this was. You know, when you're in Scientology, you don't really think about it too much. Um, it doesn't happen to you, and it doesn't happen to people that you know that often. At least it didn't used to. Maybe now it's, you know, more prevalent. But when I was in, uh, it wasn't like every other week there was a new disconnection order or something. Uh, and we weren't seeing the SP declares all the time. They stopped posting them in the early 2000s. 
It used to be that it was policy that if somebody was declared a suppressive person anywhere in the world, we would get a notice on the notice board. And every church of Scientology has a notice board. And so those would go up and we'd see them and we'd see that, you know, Joe Blow was a declared SP and here's all the reasons why. And we'd go, ah, yeah, bad guy, okay. You know, you'd see one of those once a month or something. I mean, it wasn't like we were seeing lots and lots of these SP declares. And then they just sort of stopped appearing at much at all. And yet I was learning more and more people were being declared. And I was like, mm, what's up with this? How come we're not seeing the declare orders? And they were being hidden away in the file cabinet, right, in, in HCO, which was the area that dealt with ethics and dealt with suppressive people. So I, I, it took a few years for me to catch on to the fact that they, that they were now being hidden away. So we weren't seeing them that often. So we weren't really thinking about disconnection that often, kind of getting back to my point here. Um, so, you know, it's not like this prevalent thing throughout the world of Scientology that disconnection is this big deal. It's only when it affects you personally that you start waking up to, wait a minute, I've been seeing this happen and it's happening to me and I, whoa, you know, and that's when people start questioning. So, yeah, so they could get away, they could easily, uh, Scientologists would easily accept that disconnection is no longer a mandatory thing, but Miscavige is never going to allow that to happen. Dequia D. Hubbard lost the rights to the term Dianetics in the early 50s, and then he brought about the term Scientology to replace it, along with past lives being a factor in the creation of a reactive mind. I remember seeing the TV commercials for Dianetics in the 1980s. I thought Scientology replaced Dianetics with LRH's resurgence in popularity in the early 60s and new book. What I am not clear on, no pun intended, is when, how, and why Dianetics came back to LRH's usage. Can you explain the history of the word from the loss of the rights to the word to current use? Yeah, this is a good question, actually. Um, so Dianetics actually has a kind of an interesting history in, within the world of Scientology. Uh, Hubbard owned Dianetics, obviously he wrote it, and he uh, it was you know, a big runaway bestseller in 1950. By 1951, it was tanking. He was involved in all kinds of personal nonsense, kidnapping his daughter and his wife, taking him to court. And this was actually being splashed around in media, and he had fled to Cuba for a while. I mean, there was all kinds of nonsense going on. And he um, was run, you know, burning through cash and, and bankrupting the organizations and sort of trashing the whole thing. In mid-1951, I believe, late 1951, he got a bit of a bailout. Uh, an oil uh, millionaire in Wichita, Kansas, named Don Purcell, offered to go into partnership with Hubbard and would, they would salvage Dianetics, because I think there were suits and I think, I think the whole thing was, was tanking pretty bad. And Purcell said, okay, I'll handle all that, the, the business suits and the debts and all the stuff that you've racked up. I'll deal with all that because I really love this concept of Dianetics and I think this has really got a lot of potential. And so you and I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to own these, these copyrights because I'm going to, this is how I understand it. I, I could be wrong about this, but this is how I understand it went down. Is that Purcell got control of the copyrights in bailing out Hubbard from the bankruptcies and debt collectors and, and tax man and everything else that was coming after him. So Hubbard agreed and they formed this kind of partnership. And Hubbard set up shop in Wichita, Kansas, and proceeded to develop Dianetics. And this is where the first inklings of Scientology started coming from at the end of 1951, 
beginning of 1952. This is when the word Scientology first appears, I think in print in November 1951, and in a lecture shortly thereafter in early 1952. So he's got this term that he's drug out, and I think Hubbard said, and I, I believe that he had actually invented the term Scientology many years before, um, and was dragging it back out, and then was maybe starting to think with the idea of religious overtones, spirituality, you know, he was kind of moving in this direction. They'd already been talking about the, the concept of past lives with, with uh, the book Science of Survival that was published in early 1951, mid-1951. Um, there was the concept of theta and this life force, you know, this elan vital. And so Dianetics was already morphing before Don Purcell even got on the scene. But then, like I said, he, he got the copyrights. And Hubbard proceeded to treat Don Purcell like he treats everybody. He treated him like crap. And, um, and their partnership was not long-lived. And Hubbard was running up debt again and doing his usual irresponsible, you know, tearing through money and um, basically not honoring his obligations or dealing with the organization in any kind of sensible fashion. So Purcell was getting a little impatient about all this, and um, then I think there was um, some lawsuits or some criminal prosecution maybe for um, practicing medicine without, a medicine without a license. I think that was happening. Charges were being brought in New Jersey somewhere. You know, that, that definitely happened. I think there might have been some other things happening in Wichita itself. There were some rumblings that were making Hubbard concerned, and he was the kind of guy who flighted around. When the, when the going got rough, he took off. That was Hubbard's, you know, operating pattern through all the years of Dianetics and Scientology. So, things started looking rough. He blamed Purcell. He blamed everybody but himself, of course. And he took off to Phoenix, Arizona. And he had then, I think this was by 1953, he had founded and set up the Church of Scientology and, and Church of American Science or something. And... Uh, Church of Spiritual Technology, or not that, but something like that. Um, and so he set up these three corporations and got religious recognition for Scientology pretty soon after that. And he had took, taken off to Phoenix, Arizona. And at that point, he no longer owned or controlled Dianetics as a term. And he just kind of let it go and gave it and, and uh, took all the mailing lists that they had accumulated in Wichita, took everything he could and went off to Phoenix and started the Church of Scientology. Then he was engaged in almost pure Scientology research, talking about um, exteriors exteriorization, trying to pop people out of their heads spiritually so they could, you know, see the room and take off and go visit the moon and, you know, that kind of nonsense. And that went on for a few years. Now, there were suits, there was, there was finance issues between Purcell and Hubbard. I don't know all the specifics of it, but I know Don Purcell was very, very frustrated. I think he was trying to continue something with the Dianetics Foundation in Wichita, but it wasn't really going. And Don Purcell was not L. Ron Hubbard, so he you know, didn't have the character or temperament or imagination to carry on with Dianetics the same way that Hubbard did. And it ended up tanking. And by 1954, late 54, I, I believe, don't get me, don't quote me on the dates on this, but definitely by 1955, all the copyrights went back to Hubbard. Purcell just said, okay, I, you know, that's it, I'm done, I can't deal with this anymore. You take it all back and I just want to pull out. And he went off and got involved in some other 
pseudoscientific thing because Purcell was kind of interested in really helping people and helping himself, but he didn't really have the best of judgment. So he went off and did his own thing and he gave Dianetics back to Hubbard. Hubbard then published a book in 1955 called Dianetics 55. And this was a book that was meant to be a direct follow-up to Dianetics, but really was all about Scientology principles and techniques. It really didn't, it, it was mostly known in the Scientology world from that point forward as the Manual of Communication, because most of what Dianetics 55 covers has to do with communication and using communication principles in auditing. Uh, and it also talks about how they had given up uh, using the e-meter too. And from 1955 to 1957, there was no e-meter being used because Hubbard at that point had gotten sick and tired of um, Volney Matheson and the fights he was having with him because Volney Matheson had invented the e-meter, had been licensing or, or selling it through the, the Dianetics and Scientology groups and Hubbard was getting whatever cut he was getting but he wasn't the owner of it and he wanted it to be the Hubbard you know, electrometer or whatever and Volney Matheson wasn't interested in selling it to him. So they finally broke off, again, like Hubbard always did with people. So in the book Dynamics 55, Hubbard talked about that. He said, yeah, we, we always knew the meter was going to be a temporary tool for us, and, um, and so now we don't need it at all. And we've been doing this kind of auditing, which involves looking around at things, touching things, and it was called objective auditing or objective processing, uh, as opposed to subjective processing, which is, you know, in your head thinking kind of auditing. Objective processing was supposed to be a, an undercut to subjective auditing, and you would use it to get people under control and get them to control themselves, and you know, and you could just run hours and hours and hours of this objective processing on people. That's what Hubbard had been working on all those years. So he then attempted in 55 to kind of bring the Dianetics people and the Scientology people together and sort of reunify them. And there was a Congress held in 55 called the Unification Congress. And it was open to the public, it was open to everybody, and Hubbard was trying to bring these people back on board and get them aligned with what he was doing now with Scientology. And, uh, and, and moving forward into this religious philosophy that he was saying out of one, you know, depending on what you read on what day, he was saying in one hand that it's not religious, you know, it's not a religion, it's a religious philosophy. Yet on the other hand, he's over here with a creed and sermons and, you know, Sunday services and, you know, he's talking about, you know, curing people and stuff. So, so he's trying to have his cake and eat it too with, with this. And he's, and he's got Dianetics now back under his control, but he's really focusing his attention on Scientology. Come around to about 10 years later, and we're at St. Hill in England. Hubbard has now purchased this property. He's delivering this course to students who are coming from around the world. It's called the St. Hill Special Briefing Course. And during the, the, the period of that time, he was doing a ton of research again. Um, in other words, messing around with people's heads because it wasn't really research. When I use the word research and Elrond in, in the context of Scientology, I mean, that's what he called it, okay? I'm not talking about real scientific research. It's a bit of a misnomer, just like calling auditing counseling, because it's not really that. But, you know, I just have to use these words because I don't, I don't, you know. He's, anyway, Hubbard was just messing around and um, using students as guinea pigs and trying different processes and procedures and techniques. 
and he was developing a lot of what became modern Scientology. The 1950s were a much looser, goosier type of time period, and in the 1960s is when Hubbard developed the bridge to total freedom, the concept of levels of spiritual awareness, um, which are reflected on the bridge, and he developed lots of different kinds of processes. He had thousands of processes at this point, objective and subjective, and he started bringing back Dianetics. Okay, that's what I wanted to get to here with, with St. Hill. He had a um, different routines, uh, different procedures or techniques, and one of them was routine three. And that had something to do with recalling things in the past and, and Dianetics type activity. And so uh, R3, um, it, it were, that was the designation for that class of processes and that, and he was bringing, and he started giving lectures and talking about bringing back doing Dianetics because he said, you know, a lot of you guys are doing all the Scientology auditing and you don't know where it came from. You don't understand book one. You haven't read Dianetics. You don't know where all this stuff comes from and the whole concept of, of what we're doing with this thing called a reactive mind. So he started pushing Dianetics again, but he refined it and he started coming up with ways that you could deal with engrams, these painful, you know, incidents in your past of, of, uh, of moments of, of pain and unconsciousness. He started dealing, it started figuring out new techniques using the e-meter because, of course, in 1957 they reinvented the e-meter with the transistor and Hubbard had that completely under his control because a Scientologist invented that and gave it to him and Hubbard had full copyright and control over the Hubbard electrometer, so, or electropsychometer, I should say. So, um, so that was 1957 forward, so by St. Hill's time they had developed the Mark IV e-meter and they were using this and they were bringing back Dianetics. Come around 1968, 1969, you get this resurgence of Dianetics where Hubbard starts talking about um, bringing it back to um, cure people of things and also to train auditors to be better auditors. And, there's the, and, and what he comes out with is something called standard Dianetics. And this was the rage for a little while, but it was mainly used as a training tool. It wasn't really used so much as a way to get people up to, you know, uh, clear an OT. There was all these Scientology procedures to do that. And there were lots of changes through the years here. So really it almost depends on what month you're talking about as far as, you know, what fit where, because there were just changes happening all over the place. But there was a period of time here where standard Dianetics was a revamped, retooled form of Dianetics. Um, it used the e-meter and it was intended to be faster and easier and it was intended to be used as a training tool. Um, book one, Dianetics, that was still being sold this entire time and people were still coming into Scientology through book one, but it was mainly looked at as this sort of older technology that they'd come up with all this new Scientology stuff that was so much better. So when people came in having read Dianetics, they'd say, yeah, you can do book one, but really, you know, you should be moving on up to the Scientology stuff because that's, that's really where it's at, you know. Okay, now come around to 1978 and we have the latest revision of Dianetics, which was called New Era Dianetics or NED. And that was a further refinement of standard Dianetics into what's, refer I, re I referred to R3, um, and then there was R3R, 
which was revised version of R of Routine 3. And NED was R3RA. This was just the numbering labeling system to show that things were being revised. And so you had Routine 3 revised and then A indicated it had been revised again. Um, if it got revised again, it would be R3RB. But as far as I know, it's still R3RA. Uh, who knows what Miscavige might do with it at some point in the future, but for now, New Aerodynamics is R3RA. That's the, the technical name for it. And it is a very, very, very codified procedure. The commands are rote. Um, people drill them, they memorize the commands, and you use the e-meter and you do assessments on the meter of various subjects to see what responds best, and then you dive in and start running uh, incidents, specific incidents, using the R3RA procedure, or the NED procedure. Uh, and that involves commands like, you know, um, locate a time when you had a, you know, let's say the thing that read was a pain in your elbow. So you'd have the guy on the meter and you'd be saying, okay, locate a time when you had a pain in your elbow. And the guys would go, okay, yeah, and you go, good. What's the duration of that incident? And the guy goes, oh, well, it was about five minutes. You go, great. Move to the beginning of that incident and tell me when you're there. And the guy goes, ah, okay, and, you know, close your eyes. Oh, sure. Good. Move through that incident to a point five minutes later. And the guy sits there and goes, oh, okay. You know, silently does that. And then goes, then the auditor says, tell me what happened. And the guy goes, oh, well, you know, I was here and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then depending on what the e-meter is doing, the person might be sent back to go through that incident again, or they might be made to look for an earlier incident. And, um... Generally, you know, odds are they're going to go earlier and earlier and earlier, and this can take hours of time to take down one particular type of incident, a pain in your elbow, let's say, or a time you fell down and, you know, knocked your head or something. I mean, whatever the wording of the, of the type of incident is, you will go back and, and run that with this procedure until you get to a point, you know, past lives, way, way back in time, and uh, have thoroughly discharged all of the mental mass that Hubbard theorized existed around all these moments of stress and trauma. Okay, and that is how Dynetics is used now in the Church of Scientology. Um, the, the, again, the, the book one, Dianetics, The Modern Science of Mental Health, is still sold, it's still used as a dissemination tool, and people can come in and they can audit right out of book one, they can do the procedure without the meter, without any of that, without any of the NED or R3RA stuff, they can just take book one and they can just go, but they're told pretty quickly, look, this isn't gonna get you all the way to clear, we've got refined techniques and you need to move up and get on to the bridge to total freedom and do Scientology, and that way we can get you on to clear and all the way up to OT. And that is the story of Dianetics, <laughs> and I hope that that answered your question. RCK. From watching Scientology in the aftermath and from various websites, people who leave Scientology, or blow, are afraid that other Scientologists will come after them and bring them back. In Scientology in the aftermath, the Headleys describe how they blew and had to evade those seeking to find them and bring them back. Also, in the same series, there was a story of one ex-Scientologist being tracked down in South Africa and being brought back to the States. My question is, what does it mean to be brought back? It sounds like people have a real fear of being brought back against their will by being kidnapped or abducted. Is this fear real? Or does being brought back mean persuading an ex-Scientologist to come back by the use of arguments? For example, you left behind family and friends and they all miss you, or you know Scientology is right and now that you've been in the world you know how right it is. 
The latter I can understand, but if it is the former, it makes one wonder why no one has ever filed a police report. Okay, well, first things first. People have filed police reports against the Church of Scientology for lots of things. Um, the fact that the police don't act on it is another thing. And that could involve statute of limitations, that can include, that could involve evidence, that could involve more than he said, she said. Because when you have somebody who's making a complaint against a group, and that group can provide 20 sworn statements that that never happened, or that this person has, you know, got an axe to grind or something, then the police are, you know, their hands are tied a bit. And that's what Scientology does all the time. So let's just kind of, you know, nix this idea that nobody's ever gone to the police about Scientology. Now, as far as the blowing thing goes, I think you're mainly referring to Sea Org members. The run-of-the-mill public Scientologist doesn't blow Scientology. They stop showing up for courses or for auditing, and they stop taking phone calls. And people come around. I, I was one of those people. I used to come around, knock on the door, try to get the person back in. And that was all done through conversation. Sometimes heavy-handed methods were used, like summoning them in for an ethics interview or trying to, you know, hey, man, you don't, you know, you know, toe the line. We're going to, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And of course, if the person is not interested in doing Scientology anymore, that usually doesn't work too good. Uh, I learned that the hard way a number of times, and that's how I got better at getting people back in, because I didn't go with a heavy-handed approach. When a staff member at a city-level church blows, just stops showing up for work, then of course they're absolutely going to call the guy, email him, track him down, try to get him to come back to work. But there's only so much you can do. If the guy says, look, I ain't coming back and there's nothing I'm, that you're going to say that's going to change my mind, then that's going to be it. They'll issue a goldenrod on the person. They'll issue, they'll say he's a type, you know, some type of uh, source of trouble. Or they might, if the guy was really off, you know, and really mad and really irate and, start, and threatening to go public or something, then they might declare the person a suppressive person. But that's, that's really kind of few and far between as far as staff members go at the church, at the city level churches. For the Sea Org, okay, let's take a look at the mindset of a Sea Org member. They are 24-7, they are hardcore, they are dedicated. They are in a group where conformity is king, where they are expected to toe the line, and if they don't toe the line, it's, it's on them, it's not on the group. It's, you know, from their point of view and from all the material that they read and all the indoctrination they get and all the peer pressure that exists, they're the ones who are out of line if they don't follow the rules and do what's expected of them. And they have signed a billion-year contract of commitment. For them, that wasn't symbolic. The, you know, the church says it's a symbolic commitment. Not to Sea Org members, it's not. So you have literally signed on for life. So that's your mindset when you go into a group like that, and it takes a great force of will to be able to see that there's something really, really wrong with this group and to step out of it and go, you know, I don't want to be part of this anymore. And I'm talking about people, of course, who've been involved for a while. For somebody who's just fresh off the boat, you know, they just joined the Sea Org a couple days ago and they just want to leave, well, they're, they're generally speaking, they'll just let them go. They don't... They don't, generally speaking, put up too much of a fight. Maybe the guy has to hang around for a month or two as they, you know, clean some, you know, scrub some floors or scrub some toilets or something, and they kind of run him through the ringer before they kick him to the curb. But for the long-term guys, you know, there's a mental, there's a psychological component there, and it's a powerful one. So it's a big deal for them to step out of that group and stop conforming and step out from under that authority. 
and they're very nervous about it. They're very conflicted about it. Um, there's lots of doubts. There's lots of confusion. There's lots of uncertainty. And that is what gets preyed upon by people who try to go recover these people when they blow, when they take off. You know, they're, they're generally speaking, they take off at odd times, middle of the night, early morning. I mean, they're, they're tired, they're confused, they are overworked. They might have already be, they're already uh, in many cases um, suffering from some degree of anxiety, depression, PTSD. I mean, Scientology, you know, the Sea Org really creates this kind of thing with its, with its 24-7 high pressure, you know, call center kind of environment that it, that, that it always generates for Sea Org members. The pressure is enormous. So stepping out of that and, you know, everything that that sort of means for their future, because they, you know, when you buy into Scientology, you believe that this is your future. You don't, you know, this is the only thing that matters and this is the only thing that's going to save yourself and save the world. So, you know, you come out of a situation like that by leaving, you know, in an unauthorized manner and, um, and you got all kinds of, you know, things going on in your head. So if they can track you down through bus, you know, tickets or airplanes uh, tickets or through your credit cards or your ATM use or something like that and they try all those methods to track Sea Org members down. If they can actually get to you, they're going to prey on every one of those doubts and uncertainties that you have. So yes, it is a conversation. I don't know, I can't think of instances where I would say there was kidnapping involved in recovering somebody, but that's not to say it hasn't happened. I'm just not thinking of anything off the top of my head right now. They will absolutely come and put their arms around you, you know, try to control you back over to their car. So to that degree, there's, you know, physical coercion. Um, but, you know, they're not going to try to create a scene in public. That's for sure. That's why when Claire Headley went and just sat down on the floor in the middle of the train station or bus station. They couldn't really do anything. I mean, they were like, oh, you know, this is going to be a, a, you know, we're going to have a scene here. And they don't want any scenes. They don't want any, they don't want to have anything to do with any of that. They don't want the police called. They don't want any kind of authority figures showing up. So they're going to do everything they can to avoid that, like the plague. But they will still pursue the person through phone, email, text messages, calls, uh, or in person. Um, to try to get them back because they are afraid of what the person's going to do. You know, somebody blows, they take off, now they're no longer under that mantle of control that the Sea Org has over its members. And they don't know what this person's going to do. So minimally, they want to do damage control. And they want to get to make sure that this person is still a true believer in Scientology, therefore is still a believer that they hold, that Scientology holds all the keys to their future, that their eternity is at stake, and they'll maybe let the guy go out of the Sea Org. They'll go, okay, come back. Let's go through the process. And then they'll drag it out for months, as I've described in earlier videos here, as to how and why they do that. And if the guy still wants to go, fine. Eventually, he can get out of there. Um, but they want to do everything they can to minimize PR damage to the church from former members. And I understand that at this point, they're actually um, paying people, you know, quite a bit and reducing freeloaders debts and and being uh you know coming off as kinder gentler sea org now and i think that's a direct result of our work certainly leah's work uh and the work of uh, alex gibney and lawrence wright i mean absolutely but i think i think all of us have contributed to that because the sea org now is 
taking actions to try to help get people jobs and make sure that everything is fine with them and paying them more money than they were paying them before. And, um, and so that the, I think also so that the NDAs they have to sign have a little bit more teeth to them. And so that's why we're not necessarily hearing from as many former members as we used to, because they Sea Org, you know, they're cunning, they're crafty, uh, they're not stupid. And they know that uh, if they keep kicking people to the curb and abusing them uh, along the way, that people are just going to go to the media and go to Leah and go to Mike Rinder or come to my channel or Aaron Smith-Levins, and they're going to talk, you know, or, to, or go to Tony Ortega and tell him a story. And, uh, and so they're trying to minimize that now by, you know, not being quite so ruthless and authoritarian. But as far as the blow thing goes, as far as somebody actually taking off, everything I've said here is still completely valid and in force as far as I know. So there you go. The thunder and the lightning indicates it is time for flash answers. Melinda, there was a post on Tony Ortega's blog recently showing that it was mandatory that all Scientology staff members keep themselves informed and stay up to date by watching all the programs aired on the Scientology network. To me, this does not bode well for the atmosphere inside the bubble. Miscavige opened Pandora's box when he unleashed Scientology TV. Could this be his Achilles heel? At any rate, could this hissy fit be an indication of the beginning of the end? Will this spur another mass exodus? Any speculation on if, when, which celebs or whales might be jumping ship, pardon the pun, next? At the very least, is the mental midget beginning to totally unravel? <laughs> um, none of the above. I, I don't see any indication that Scientologists are fleeing the ship or freaking out in any way over that order. And um, maybe you'd have to be a Scientology staff member for many years to understand the kinds of crazy orders we used to get all the time to do stuff just like that. Uh, very time-consuming orders to read all the books, to do this, to watch this video, to um, you know, write this essay, do these drills, do all this stuff. I mean, this was constant. We were constantly getting orders like this. So the, the fact that they've issued an order to all the staff to watch all the Scientology TV shows, which is you know, really just a few hours of content a week, that, that, is, that is no big deal. No one's freaking out about that. No one's like, oh my God, in the church about that. The staff members are probably for the most part going, ugh, all right, I gotta schedule that into my day now and you know, figure it out. And most of them are probably using their post time to do it rather than their off post time to do it. So it, it's, you know, it's really just more sort of par for the course for Scientology staff members and uh, Sea Org members too. They're probably doing, you know, maybe Saturday night briefings or something where they watch all the shows that came out that week and they do a two hour stint or something or they watch them, you know, they spend half an hour a day in the morning and they individually watch them and have to sign a sheet saying that they've watched the shows, you know. I mean, that's kind of how that stuff goes and, it, and, it, and that order will come down and everybody will follow it for a while and then gradually they'll stop and it'll fade out and then they'll have to come down again or some new order will come that will replace that one and that's just how it goes in, in, in being a Scientology staff member. So, uh, so no, no, none, uh, no alarm bells going off here at all over any of that. Scott, you and many others have pointed out that one reason people stay in Scientology and put up with all the abuse is that they're afraid of losing their immortality. At what point do Scientologists gain their immortality? 
And what of the wogs out there? Do only Scientologists have immortality? All right, well, as I've said many times, uh, Scientologists believe that a Thetan is an immortal spiritual being who has lived a near infinite time in the past and will live forever into the future. The quality or state of their existence is what's in question. And the idea is that you are breaking free of the cycle of endless birth, death, birth, death, birth, death, which you have no control over, no cogniz, you know, no force of will over unless you get up the Scientology bridge to total freedom all the way to the top. That's the ticket for your immortality. Okay, going clear, maybe that helps a little bit. Getting trained as a Scientologist, that's supposed to help a little bit. But there's no guarantee that you're going to break this cycle and not forget everything if you don't get all the way through the OT levels and get on up to OT8 and beyond. And this is why Scientologists still hold on to and push to get to the top of the bridge because OT8 is supposed to be the first true OT level. That's supposed to be the first place you get to where you're actually gaining new spiritual understanding and ability and not just shedding crap from the past or body thetans that are stuck to you. So that is where, I guess, if anywhere um, is the place where you gain your immortality, it's OT8. Jackie, I've always noticed that a lot of Class 5 staffers usually work in investment management. As a former member of the C organization and Class 5 staffer, I never understood how someone with little education, especially when you go to Delphi Academy, could work in such a critical job. I did know someone who actually held a course in business that was part of the church. Just before he held the event, he told me his business was failing and he had no idea how to fix it. To this day, he is now in Clearwater, Florida, teaching people about advertising, business investments, and how to find potential clients. I guess registrars, recruiters, and treasury staff have all the best ideas. Have you ever noticed this? <laughs> yeah, what I've noticed, Jackie, is that uh, most Scientologists, especially staff members and then Sea Org members after they leave the Sea Org, are under the extremely mistaken notion that they know something about business administration and money and finance and how to make lots of money. Um, I mean, there's tons of get-rich-quick schemes and things going on at the fringes of Scientology all the time. And investment management is just another one of those places where people think they can go in, get a quick buck. They don't really have the grounding or the background or the knowledge base to do a good job at it. And they either get that knowledge base quickly and they find out that the job is way more complicated than they ever imagined. Or they flop and end up on their back like a turtle just, you know, flopping around. And that's what you saw and that's what we see all the time in Scientologists trying to, you know, get do these get-rich-quick things. So that's pretty much what I have to say about that. Okay, everybody, thank you very much for coming around and listening to my nonsense for another week. I really appreciate your viewership. Leave any questions, comments, or feedback, good, bad, or sideways, in the comment section below. I will be sure to see it. I love you guys' questions. Keep them coming, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.